Please be seated. If you have your Bible with you this morning, I'd invite you to turn with me to Jonah chapter 3. We've been in Jonah for the last two weeks and will be again this week and then wrap it up, Lord willing, next Sunday in chapter 4. Jonah chapter 3, 10 verses, and I will read it in its entirety now. This is the word of God. Please give heed to how you hear. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. This morning I want to spend our time in Jonah 3 talking about a most important doctrine, a central doctrine, in fact, to the Christian life. And that is the doctrine of repentance. Now, why is repentance such an important doctrine? Why is it such a central doctrine? Well, the very simple reason is because without true repentance, without humble contrition before an almighty God, a person cannot be saved. It's that important. Thomas Watson said that repentance is of such importance that there can be no saving without it. The two great graces essential to a saint in this life are faith and repentance. These are the two wings by which he flies to heaven. King David proclaimed in Psalm 51 verse 17 that the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite or repentant heart, O God, you will not despise. Jesus' very first sermon, according to the Gospel of Mark, found in chapter 1, verse 15, was very short and to the point. The time is fulfilled, Jesus said. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This doctrine of repentance was, according to the Apostle Paul, the crux of his message. In Acts chapter 20, he's being questioned as to his ministry, and he says these words, that he was testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. 
All of this to say, while there are many doctrines that fall within the larger circle of what we would call central doctrines, the one at the bullseye of that circle is the doctrine of repentance, for without it, you cannot be saved. And so what each of us needs to ask ourselves today is this, have I truly repented of my sins before a holy and merciful God? Have I truly repented of my sins before a holy and merciful God? And then do I continue to live or live a life in keeping with repentance? A life of daily repentance in light of God's majesty and love and mercy shown to me in Christ Jesus. Jonah chapter 3 is going to give us a paradigm for repentance or an example of what true repentance looks like, especially in the lives of the Ninevites. But as well, we'll take a look at our man Jonah to see how he is displaying a life of true repentance as well. We'll see four things this morning. Number one, true biblical repentance is a response to God's word. True biblical repentance is a response to God's word. Number two, true repentance is a matter of faith. Number three, true repentance is both complete and concrete. And number four, and perhaps most encouragingly, true repentance is hopeful. It's hopeful. I want to say this now at the outset as we kind of uh, land the heavy blows in the opening salvos of this uh, chapter in our time in Jonah chapter 3. True repentance is not a response to angry closed fists but to open merciful arms. And I don't want you to miss that as we go through our text. I'll bring it up again shortly. Let's look at our first point in uh, verses 1 through 4, that true repentance is a response to God's word. Listen to the emphasis that the author puts on the word of God in these first three verses. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out it against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. So right off the bat, we see that something has changed in Jonah's heart. If you turn with me back to chapter 1, I want you to listen to the parallels that exist between chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, and chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. And there's going to be one one key word difference. There's a few differences that, that we'll look at, but there's one key word that I want you to notice. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, saying, verse 1, chapter 3, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, now, if you were here several weeks ago, Pastor Paul Mulder preached a sermon on this text and was very uh, apt to point out the relationship between that second time and, and the uh, uh, unpredictable grace of God in the life of a believer. But we're going to move past that. Now let's look at verse 2 together. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up to me. Chapter 3. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Okay, a little difference there. Here it is. Chapter 1, verse 3. But Jonah rose and fled. Chapter 3. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Something had happened in Jonah's life, in his heart, during his time in the belly of the great fish. In chapter 1, he receives a commission from God, and he runs, but Jonah, in opposition to God, runs. And now in chapter 3, so Jonah, in humble submission to God, goes. 
Jonah had had a change of heart. He had repented of his sinful disobedience against God. If you recall from last week, we talked about Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 87, which I presume that all of you spent the week committing to memory. Just in case you haven't, I'll remind us of what it says. 87, what is repentance unto life? And the answer is repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ Jesus doth turn with grief and hatred from his sin from it unto God with full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. Now, last week we emphasized the apprehension of the mercy of God, right? That was what we saw in the belly of the fish. Jonah became aware of God's mercy. He should have been fish food on the bottom of the sea, but rather he was being preserved, saved, if you will, in the belly of the fish. And so God's mercy was evident to him. He had a fresh experience and taste of God's mercy, which equipped him to do a number of things. First of all, to repent. Uh, And second of all, to come out of the fish with a desire to obey God, a new purpose of uh, obedience to God. And that's what we see in this chapter. It caused him to turn from his sin of rebellious disobedience unto God with full purpose of an endeavor after obedience. Jonah's a new man, born again on the dry land after three days in the watery grave. And he had purposed in his heart to obey the Lord. And this newness... And purpose with which he's now living is a result of true repentance. He had heard the word of the Lord and tried to run from it. And now he responds to the word of the Lord in obedience. True repentance is a response from the word of the Lord to the word of the Lord. Now, Jonah's not the only one in our text that responds to the word of the Lord. Look at verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city a day's journey and proclaimed this apparently being the message that God will tell him back in verse 2. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And we'll come back to verse 5 momentarily. But the people of Nineveh believed God. They respond to the word of the Lord. Before we get there, I want us to take a moment to think about what this word was. What was the word of the Lord to the Ninevites? Now, we have no reason to presume that Jonah said any more than what's recorded here in the text. You can try to speculate that Jonah had a a, a long discourse about his time in the fish and the mercy of God and covenant faithfulness, or perhaps he was handing out tracts of the Pentateuch so everybody knew about creation and the Exodus and God's covenant keeping and numbers in Deuteronomy and so forth. But we have no evidence that that occurred. Rather, Jonah went in. Remember, he does not like these folks. He's going to make it clear in chapter 4 that he really doesn't like these folks. We have no reason to believe he did anything but basically obey what God told him to do. Yet 40 days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. The word of the Lord in this case is a troubling word. It is not an easy word, and it's a word that lands hard on our sensitive modern ears. We want Jonah to have said, Uh, Yes, Lord, I'm going to the city. Jonah began to go a day into the city and called out to Nineveh, Jesus loves you, so you should go to church. That, that would be a good message. Or, you know, the big problem here, you, you know, God's not really too happy with you guys. So what we need to do is work on the Ninevite marriages. We're gonna, we're, I'm going to have a marriage sem- seminar in 40 days. And when all of our marriages are fixed, then God's going to be really, you know, we're going to be at peace with God because of that. 
You know, you Ninevites spend impulsively. Your finances are certainly not God-honoring. Nobody here tithes, so we're going to talk about tithing and giving and stuff like that. That'll be the focus of our message from God, after all. Rather, Jonah walks into Nineveh and says, in 40 days, God will destroy all of you. In fact, the word here he uses is overthrown. It's the same word that Moses used to describe the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's the same word that Moses uses to describe the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Jonah is troubled that God is willing to show them grace. That's what he'll tell us in chapter 4, verse 2. The Ninevites are troubled that God is about to pour out his wrath on their evil and sinful ways. It's a hard message. It's a message that none of the Ninevites wanted to hear and that certainly Jonah did not want to preach. Just the best I can do for a a, a parallel example would be this. Imagine being commissioned by God and told by God to buy a plane ticket to Saudi Arabia and then travel to Mecca and then bring with you one of those collapsible ladders, climb up on top of that giant black rock that the Muslim people march around during the Hajj and proclaim from a bullhorn in 40 days all Muslim adherents will be destroyed by God. Imagine preaching that message. Imagine the, the, the difficulty, the fear that would arise in your heart to even hear that that's what God wanted you to do. Now, put yourself back 20 years. Not only is the fear rising in your heart, so is the resentment towards the offer of salvation to people that you despise or hate or are afraid of. And that's what Jonah's been asked to do. He's given a hard message to a hard-nosed people who are full of evil and wickedness, and you can imagine his message going over like a lead balloon. Evil city, evil men, evil in their hatred and rejection of God, evil in their deeds. It's unsurprising that the message from Jonah is, you're about to be destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, we may think instinctively in our hearts, well, of course, that's what they deserve, right? I mean, they're evil. Back in chapter 1, their evil came up before the Lord. These are the Ninevites, after all. I mean, Jonah's a covenant child. Perhaps he's got a a good read on these folks and and knows that they don't deserve God's mercy and grace. Uh, But not so us. I mean, we don't need that sort of message. We need that earlier message that we had wished that Jonah had preached. Jesus loves you, let's fix your marriage from Ephesians chapter 5, and those sorts of things, or a 12-step program to have a happy Christian life, and so forth. And you can find that online if you desire. You can find it in many churches around our land. What you have a hard time finding is messages concerning sin, and the wrath of God, and the judgment to come, and the summons for men and women and boys and girls to repent and believe in the gospel. But why do we need that message? The reason that we need that message is because we are not far from Nineveh. Listen to what Scripture says about me and you. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can know it? Jesus himself said, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. Paul summarizes it in one terse statement in Romans chapter 3. For all have sinned 
and fallen short of the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, this is the testimony of Scripture against all mankind. We are conceived in iniquity and brought forth in sin, as the psalmist says. We are evil in our actions. The Bible lists them for us. Malice, anger, wrath, slander, obscene talk, immorality, impurity, evil desires, and covetousness, and idolatry, and so forth. We're evil in our actions, and we're evil in our rebellion against God. That in and of itself is evil. Jesus says, anyone who's not with me is against me, is, that, is an enemy. Paul says that we're at enmity with God, alienated from him, apart from Christ. All this to say the message of God's wrath and his promise to overthrow his enemies is the message that the world needs to hear. It's a message that we need to be reminded of. I knew a man many years ago who, uh, he's long since passed, uh, and he was a... Um, he, grew, he was born and raised in Germany, and he fought for Germany in World War II, and he was a POW on the Russian front. And he escaped a POW camp and had to make his way on foot back to friendly lines, such as it were. And he had lost such an obscene amount of weight and had become so unhealthy because of his trials that he lived a He was a very, when I knew him, he was a very, very obese man because he was so fearful of ever going without food again. Now, I'm not commending obesity or overeating but what i'm saying is this man had had such a desperate taste of what starvation and hunger looked like that every time he saw food he was thankful for it and he took more of it to himself do we not need to be reminded of the mercy of god shown to us sinners reminded of the wrath of god rightly directed at all who are against him and then as we do, as we remember who we were, as Paul does in Ephesians chapter 2, don't forget, you were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds apart from God and without hope, but he has now brought you into the covenant family by the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. We need those reminders. We need to hear about sin and repentance and the wrath of God. And the world certainly does. We talk about the gospel as good news. But good news is only good insofar as it's reflective of the opposition to the bad news. In other words, the backdrop, that, that black backdrop of God's wrath and judgment against sin makes the shiny diamond of the gospel all the more brilliant as we examine it. If you hold up a diamond in front of the sun, you can't tell that you're looking at a diamond at all because the sun drowns it out. But yet that's what passes for a lot of gospel preaching in our land these days. We went bright and shiny against the backdrop of bright and shiny. And it's really hard to differentiate and see the difference, isn't it? Now I can't see because I looked right at that light bulb for far too long. <laughs> All of your faces have disappeared. But we need to hold that diamond up like a jeweler does against that black velvet backdrop. And that's God's wrath. The bad news that in 40 days Nineveh will be overthrown. And we need to hear that. We need to remember that wrath and mercy are of one and the same God. Wrath and mercy are of one and the same God. God displays his godness towards sin in wrath and his mercy towards repentance. And we need to remember who he is. It's a gracious message itself. People think that the, that the message of Jonah here is incompatible with the gospel message of Jesus Christ. The grace that's available to us in Christ is incompatible with the message of God's wrath and punishment. But 
the reality is Jonah's message is not incompatible with grace. It is itself a gracious message. It would have been totally within the bounds of God's sovereignty and holiness and right to not say anything to Nineveh and just to wipe them out. God would have been totally justified and would have in no way sinned or acted contrary to his nature if he had simply allowed the Ninevites to drink the cup of their own wrath. But rather he sent a messenger there with a hard message designed to bring them to their knees, to open their eyes to the majesty and power of a God who has the right and the ability to overthrow them. That's a a gracious and merciful message. It's the message that did, in fact, drive them to their knees, as we'll see. The question is, if God isn't really all that holy, and he isn't really all that upset with sin, then why repent? It's only when a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, the catechism says, that is a sense of God's holiness and the heinousness of our sin in light of his character, that a person is driven to repentance. Martin Lloyd-Jones said it this way, the essence of evangelism is to start by preaching the law. And it is because the law has not been preached that we have had so much superficial evangelism. Evangelism must start with the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, the demands of the law, the punishment meted out by the law, and the eternal consequences of evil and wrongdoing. It is only the man who is brought to see his guilt in this way who flies to Christ for deliverance and redemption. Notice also what God does with this simple word. Jonah is not uh, your eloquent Old Testament preacher. He's not listing out here a bunch of poetry uh, related to God's majesty and covenant faithfulness. He says, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's it. And look what God does with this simple word. It's a very simple word. And God causes an entire city, a great exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth, who is exceedingly wicked to repent and turn to God in contrition. Think about that. You know, the reason that we don't pray for revival is because we don't really believe in it. We think, well, that group over there is too far gone. Those people are too bad. He certainly wouldn't do that. Can you imagine if someone stood on top? They wouldn't even make it to the top of the rock. But if somebody got to Mecca and started preaching from a bullhorn the gospel of Jesus Christ, repent and believe in Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, nothing would happen. That person would be killed, right? That's what we we would expect. That person would be martyred for their faith. And so we act as though that's the absolute reality and the only outcome that could possibly happen, which is why nobody preaches repentance to lost and dying sinners. Because we think that what we need to do is try to soften, bring them into the soft door. Bring them into the soft door. And we'll talk, we'll talk about the wrath of God eventually in our theological Sunday school class. But let's bring them into the soft door. Brothers and sisters, look what God does with a simple word here. Why do we try to apologize for the message of the Bible and relativize it or make it more palatable for sinners who are on their way to hell? They don't, need our, uh, they don't need it to be made more palatable. They need to hear the truth. Sinners need to hear the truth of who God is and who they are in light of his holiness and sovereignty and be brought to their knees in repentance. This is what happens here 
in Nineveh. The result of hearing the message was to believe. They heard the word of the Lord. True repentance is a response to God's word, and true repentance is a matter of faith. Look at verses 5 and 6. And the people of Nineveh believed God. Verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, and covered himself with sackcloth and satin ashes. He repented as well. Now, this is significant. Verse 5 does not say that the people believed Jonah, does it? It doesn't say that Jonah was an excellent speaker and the people began to follow him because his messages really encouraged them. Rather, it says Jonah spoke, got himself out of the way, and the people believed God. The people believed God. It is God's message that people need to hear and believe, not ours, not mine. God's message. We have no right to tamper with the gospel or to try to create a cult of personality where people love to come listen to a particular preacher or listen to a particular speaker online or listen to a particular length or type of sermon. Rather, we, you and I, we each need to sit under faithful preaching of God's word, whatever that might be, depending on the text that's being expounded upon. We just need to hear from God and then believe him. Jonah did not have a following, a charismatic personality, and he did not endear himself to the people. Now, that doesn't mean that preachers should be uh, difficult to be around or hard-nosed or, you know, uh, lack total personality, have a total lack of personality. But what people need, what you need, what the world needs is to believe in God. Believe in God. And that's what we see here. The people heard Jonah, perhaps in his bitterness, and they believed God. Palmer Robertson says, It is not the force of the argument presented by the prophet that moved the people. It was the power of God's truth that pierced to the heart. Never rely on your own persuasive powers as the way to save sinners. Never wait until you have confidence in yourself to speak up for Christ. It is God and his truth that people need to believe. You remain only the instrument. And that's as true for me in this pulpit, for Pastor Stewart when he's preaching, for any of the elders as they're reading God's word, and for you as you're sharing the gospel with your children around the dinner table, with your grandchildren on vacation, with your spouses as you do worship together, with your coworkers as you're at work, with your neighbors as you're barbecuing in your driveway, and with people you meet in the world. It's God's word they need to believe. We spend a lot of time and a lot of effort trying to systematize a way to say simple things more simply. And we want to have like a, 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 a rapid fire list of things I'm going to say and I'm going to go through this list and, and that'll be the thing that wins people if I say it this way. Or then the other response is we, 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 we fear being asked a question that we're not prepared to answer. And so we don't say anything at all out of fear of embarrassment. I don't want to say anything because I don't want to get asked a question that's too difficult for me. Friends, the answer to that is found in spending time in God's word and in yourself apprehending the mercy of God in Christ Jesus. Never trust a skinny chef. And no one is going to accept the gospel from a person who has not been overcome and overwhelmed by it. Spend time in God's word and proclaim his message to the world. The Ninevites believed in God. They believed God, it said. This is a far cry from believing words about God. 
Many people who darken the doors of churches Sunday by Sunday believe words about God, truths that are said about God. I affirm that everything in this book and in these books that systematize my, my doctrine, I believe in what all of those things say. I believe that they are truth statements, as if I can put them aside on a shelf. But there's a difference between believing in truth and believing God. This cup here of water, I believe that that has water in it. Perhaps you can't see it. It's a clear cup with clear water. Trust me, there's water in it. I can see it. I believe that the water is wet. I believe that the water is effectual to quench my thirst. I believe that the water is helpful for life. I need it in order to live. I can go days without food. Maybe not, but I mean, the human body can go days without food. Some of you can. But I can't go that long without water. None of us can. I need it. I know I need it. I believe that this water is available to me. It's in that cup. There is a far cry between being lost in the middle of the Mojave Desert knowing that that cup is full of water and doing this. And experiencing the life-giving wetness and the energy that living water provides. There's a big difference between those things. These people don't just believe Jonah. They don't just believe facts. They believe God. They don't make an intellectual assent to the truth. Rather, they trust that the God who has said he would destroy them may, in fact, have mercy on them. Jonah's the reason why they can believe that, because he's standing there bleached white from having been spit out of a fish. And just the very nature of the, of the proclamation itself demands the idea, or at least implies the idea, that mercy is available to them. As we said earlier, God could have said nothing. Why was he warning them? He was warning them to turn them to repentance to turn them to God. So my question for you is, do you believe God? Or do you simply know a number of fantastic facts about him? Friends, there will be no Bible trivia game at the gate of heaven. But many of us are living as though we're preparing for that competition one day. If I can simply articulate the facts well enough, then he will let me in. And I fear that far too many Christians believe that that's the case. And I believe that that is increasingly true the younger you get. That many of our young people here in this church perhaps believe that knowing the facts about God that you've learned from your time in youth or your time around the family table will be the thing that God asks you about when you get to heaven. Did you pay attention to your mom and dad at family worship? Oh, yes, I did, Lord. Do you remember what they said? Oh, John 3, 16. Yep, I remember. I memorized the first 12 or 13 questions of the Shorter Catechism. I have a whole bunch of things tucked away in my memory bank. And I even went to church every day in your name. And I prayed in your name. And I sang songs in your name. And he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. Because there's a difference between having a list of facts that are true that you agree with and placing your faith in Christ alone for salvation. Jonah had experienced the fresh grace of God like David after his adulterous relationship with Bathsheba, and like Peter after his denial of his Savior. And now he goes to tell the Ninevites about it, to show them what it looks like. There's a real change in him, and the Ninevites respond with a real change in themselves. This is our third point. True repentance 
is both complete and concrete. It starts as a response to God's word. It's followed by faith in God, belief in God. And then look at what we see here in verses 7 and 8. And he issued, the king that is, issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Don't drink food, or excuse me, eat food or drink water. But let everything, man and beast, be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil ways and from the violence that is in his hands. This is reflected also back in verse 5 about the people. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least. We see here in this part of the text that real repentance has complete and concrete results. The completeness of the result is heard in the king's word here. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that's in his hand. I I presume that the violence is emphasized because that's how the Ninevites were known. Worldwide, they were known as a violent people. But he just encompasses all of their sinful behavior under the, under the banner of evil. And he says, turn from it. There's not, he doesn't start parsing out, okay, guys, listen. So we've been pagans for a long time. So what we're going to do is we're going to leave our, our music. We don't, wanna, we don't need to do that right now. Let's just leave that one alone, okay? We've got bad music that we listen to. That's okay. That's okay. Just leave that alone for a second. Okay, I know that some of you, some of you go to the, the temple prostitutes Let's, let's slow that down. We're not going to get rid of them or kick them out of the city, but let's hold off on that. That's not a big one right now. Violence, okay, violence. Let's turn from violence. We'll stop doing violence. Uh, we got a lot of heavy drinking here in Nineveh, so we're going to keep, well, let's slow it. By the end of next year, we want to be done drinking in Nineveh, okay? And he doesn't start sending, setting benchmarks and doing a halfway repentance for the people. Why? Because he realizes, and all the people realize in verse 5, that all of their evil has resulted in the promise of God's wrathful judgment. And so the people recognize, if God is who he says he is, we're in big trouble. If God is who he claims to be, we've got a big problem. And it's not just the violence, it's all our evil ways. Every one of our sins deserves his just condemnation. Every one of them. There is not one person who will spend eternity in hell undeservedly. Not one person will get there having just barely crossed the threshold into sinful enough to go to hell. Rather, the reality is there is not one person who will spend eternity in heaven that deserves to be there of their own merit. But God is a covenantally faithful God. He is faithful to his promises of blessing, of mercy and grace and forgiveness and redemption. And he is equally faithful to his promise of cursing, of wrath and anger poured out against sin for all eternity. And so the people turn completely from their sin. It's complete. Not only the people, but the animals. The king goes, okay, I'm not really sure if this is the creator God, then the animals are his too, right? So they should stop doing the bad things they're doing. Let's start separating them from pens and keep them away from each other. Cover them in sackcloth and they'll fast also. Now, obviously, the author here is using some humor, I think, in writing this text. Uh, But what he's doing is he's drawing our attention to the fact that true repentance 
requires a complete submission to God's word. A complete change of life. That idea in the catechism of looking at sin with grief and hatred and turning from it unto God with full purpose. Full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. Those are pursuing active terms. Full purpose, endeavor, chasing after obedience rather than simply turning and standing still. You see the language that's being used, employed there, the language that's employed here. He says, stop everything. We might be eating bad, stop it. We might be drinking bad, stop it. We might be sexually immoral, stop it. We might be wearing bad clothes in the view of this holy, holy God, stop that. Everybody repent completely. Perhaps you struggle to confess your sins to God to repent and turn from them because you have particular besetting sins that you don't really want to let go of, that you don't really want to turn from, that you've placed down here on the list of things that offend God rather than up here where all sin stands before God. The sinfulness of sin is lost in our modern sort of self-help, self-soothing culture that we've created both in the world and within the church. These ones aren't that bad. And so I'll, I'll get to them. I'll turn from them later. Friends, we are called to repent, to turn from our sin, to put off the old man, to take him off, throw him off. You've heard me say this before. We, when we starve the new man, we keep the old man alive. When we fail to avail ourselves of the means of grace, the old man feeds himself on the sinful lusts of the flesh. And when we feed the old man and we continue to keep him around, dragging him around behind us like a parachute full of bricks, we slow the old man down. We prevent ourselves from walking in faithful obedience and growing in Christ's likeness and being transformed. Even nature knows this. Snakes grow bigger by shedding their old skin. And yet Christians try to hold on to theirs. Friends, look at the Ninevites. They repent of their evil ways and turn from them unto God completely and concretely. What's the concrete example that we already looked at this morning of Jonah's true repentance? In chapter 1, verse 3, but Jonah ran. In chapter 3, verse 3, so Jonah went. Jonah had a concrete a tangible expression of his true repentance in light of the mercy of God that he received in the fish. And perhaps the Ninevites knew something of what Jonah's life testified to. Here was this man walking through town, smelling to high heaven like the guts of a giant fish, white from head to toe, hair bleached, clothes damaged. And I say, what is with this guy? Oh, he's God's prophet, who ran from God, but God showed him mercy, and now he's here among us, his worst enemies, giving us this bad message? Something must be real about his faith in the God that he's talking about. How did the Ninevites know that repentance was necessary? Because they looked at Jonah and saw the results of his repentance. How will the world know that what we say we believe and gather to do in this place is of any value to them at all if they can't see the fruit of repentance in our lives, the complete 
and concrete transformation of men and women and boys and girls in light of the mercy and holiness of God. And I pray that there are among us here, I pray for the children, especially in this church, that there would never be a day that you don't know and love and taste and experience the mercy of God in Jesus Christ, your own Savior, and that no one will ever be able to look at you and say, I remember when you used to be that way and now you're this way. I hope for all of you young people, you teenagers, you middle school students, even you youngest here, that when you grow up and you're my age, that the people around you, whether you're here or on the other side of the world, will never be able to say, oh, you used to be like that, but now you're like this. I truly hope and pray that your faith in Christ begins from the smallest uh, uh, seed at the youngest age and that you walk with him in obedience all your days. But they should be able to look at you and your friends and see a difference. They should be able to look at you and what they see on TikTok or on YouTube or on Instagram and know that there's a difference by the things that you thumbs up and heart, by the things that you like, by the websites that you visit, by the clothes that you wear, by the music you listen to and the things you talk about over coffee. They should know that you're different because there is a complete and a concrete element of true biblical repentance. It starts as a response to God's word. It results in saving faith, believing God. It looks like in the Christian life, concrete, comprehensive change, and it's born out of hope. True repentance is hopeful. Look at verse 9. Who knows? God may relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we might not perish. That's enough. It's enough to know that if God is merciful, we're saved. It's enough to know that if God is kind to us and offers forgiveness, then we're going to be okay if we turn to him in true repentance. It's hopeful True repentance is not simply a response to God's angry, closed fists directed at sin. Rather, it is a hopeful belief in God's merciful, opened arms that all who come to him in faith and repentance will be welcomed by him, will be saved in his son. And their hope was not misplaced. Look at verse 10. When God saw what they did, I, I, can, I can summarize verse 10 like this. When God saw what they did, he acted according to his nature. When God saw what they did, he acted according to his nature. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving sin and transgression and iniquity. True repentance is hopeful. It's the reason we have an assurance of pardon after we confess our sins to God each Lord's day. It's not because we hope that there might be some unbeliever here who needs to confess their sins and I do it publicly for you. It's because Christians need to be reminded that when we confess our sin, God acts according to his nature. When we repent of our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. And it looks like concrete, complete change, hope and expectation that he will forgive. And it's in response to the word of God. What do we do? Look at your bulletin. What do we do before our confession of sin and assurance of pardon every Lord's day? We read the word. 
because confession and repentance comes as a result of hearing God's message. Have you repented of your sins before a holy and merciful God? Do you live a life that evidences the reality of your claim to faith? James says faith without works is dead faith. It's no real faith at all. The faith that comes from believing in God and repenting of your sins works itself out in a life of faithful obedience. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey me. John says, if you abide in him, you ought to walk in the same manner that he walked. Does your confession of faith match your life? Do you live a life of daily repentance in light of God's majesty and love and mercy toward you in Christ Jesus? I hope that you do. I hope that every day you experience anew the mercy of God in Christ Jesus. Taste it. Taste it again. Taste it again. Taste more of it so that way you will overflow with the evidence of its reality in your life. And again, the illustration may be off-putting, and I'm not commending an unhealthy lifestyle, but the person who loves Moose Tracks ice cream and eats a gallon of it every night, you know it. People ought to know that we love the mercy of God in Christ Jesus. Do you? Do they? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you especially this morning for your mercy, for your promise to relent of the disaster that you promised, that you said that you would do to us sinners, enemies of God, as we turn and repent of our sin and place our faith in Jesus. Rather, your Son bears the wrath of God for us. He absorbs the cup of our judgment, even as he did for these Ninevites some 3,000 years ago. Thank you for your mercy. Help us to love it more, to meditate on it day and night, to know more fully and taste more sweetly what is the grace of God toward us sinners. And help us then, Lord, as we say here at our church, to go out into the world modeling the grace of God and extolling your glory from this place to the ends of the earth. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.